Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu cc. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Every spring, tens of thousands of fans descend on a city of about half a million people in the Midwest. By any measure, these are serious fans. But they're not coming to see a singer or a sports team or a comedian. They're coming to see an investor in his mid-80s named Warren Buffett, who's the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Zoe Fraud-Blenar says that these sorts of devotees deserve a special label. Super fans are those fans who are willing to make the fandom part of their personal identity. Fraud Blenar teaches at NYU, and she's made a study of superfans. She's the co-author of the book, Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. And she argues that the reason that so many people, lots of whom don't particularly have a lot of money, make the pilgrimage to Omaha to see Warren Buffett and watch him eat C's candy and hear him dispense wisdom about life and money is the same reason that people go to Star Trek conventions or proclaim themselves to be diehard Springsteen fans. It's because something about the thing that they love reflects who they are. It speaks to them in a way that few other things that they've encountered in life do. And Fraud Blenar says, we've seen a striking trend in recent years, a surge in superfans of all sorts. Now, it's important to say, there have always been fans, and there have always been things and people that drew large numbers of admirers. I mean, as long as there's been culture, there has been fandom. You see pilgrimages going back thousands of years. We certainly see back in Victorian periods, people going crazy for Mozart and throwing their under things at at various composers and uh, famous musicians. So this urge to act in fan-like ways, this is a, a very basic human thing. But in the last, say, 20 years or so, something's changed. And what's that something? Well, in a word, technology. But technology's working in two ways here. One is that being nerdy has, for a lot of people, become cool. The fact that we had the tech bubble in the mid-90s suddenly flooded the market with all of these white-collar, very high-status, highly-paid jobs, and it meant that the prototypical nerd, who perhaps previously was stuck in a basement somewhere and and had a bit of a a bad reputation as someone who, who you certainly wouldn't want to date, all of a sudden their social clout skyrocketed. Which is why, Fraud Blenar says, things that once seemed fringe or nerdy, including comic book heroes and video games, now feel a lot more mainstream. The other way that tech has created a wave of superfans is that tech makes obsession easy. What modern fans have, which has never been available throughout history, is they have immediate access. So imagine a fan back maybe in the 1800s. If you wanted to hear your music, You had to go and find a local orchestra, and then you had to find some money, and then you had to pay, and you had to set up your timing, and you could go and listen to it. Right. If you're a music fan now, you press a button. So when you have so much less time being spent just tracking down these things that you love, you have a lot more energy for other things. You have all these fun ancillary activities that you now have time and energy to spend on besides just 
engaging in that primary consumption process. So you could do things like take a pilgrimage to the place where that singer was born Mm -hmm. or maybe try to convince your friends to come with you next time. Or perhaps you could start making rituals or traditions around the the visiting concerts or or maybe um, wearing clothes with that singer's face on it. These are all things which you could do before, but you probably didn't have the time or energy to do it because it was so hard just to do that that basic thing that you had to do to be close to the thing you loved. You, you also make the point, uh, and I kind of made it too, which is that Fans are not only around the kind of people you would expect to have fans. The Beyonce's, Lady Gaga's, you know, if you go back, the Beatles or Elizabeth Taylor or whoever. Um, but they're also around all sorts of other kinds of people who you might not expect to have fans. Like, for example, Warren Buffett, who I was talking about. Um, so talk about those people, the sort of the unexpected fan clubs that have popped up around not singers or actresses, but other sorts of people. You can have a fan for anything, any piece of culture which draws people in and, and people have an emotional tie to, that's going to work as as a fan object. There's uh, the wonderful example of Polaroid, something which people feel a deep emotional connection to, the act of taking instant photography. It's, it's very close to people, but you wouldn't necessarily think of a a photography company as being something that people are going to stand outside and hold up signs for. Right. And yet they have. Polaroid itself has not done so well, but they are now rebounding as a licensing company just because people felt such an affinity for that company, for the the little square of white that surrounds people's pictures, for the feeling that they had when they were kids, that nostalgia of clicking a little button and you get that little scrap of paper yeah. and you hand it around and wave it. It's these rituals. <laughs> and some of the stories that you hear surrounding this instant film, I mean, these are very personal and full of emotion. People whose lives were changed by their connection with this product and, and this group and and the memories that they're creating are completely valid for all that it's a very non-traditional thing for them to love. Hmm. Apart from Polaroid and apart from Warren Buffett, are there products or people who you came across in researching the book who had kind of this fan constituency that really surprised you? In the process of researching this book, we came across probably over 100 fascinating, fascinating, fascinating groups. But I have to say, one that took me by surprise, there was a group called the White Rabbit Social Club. And they are uh, what's called a Disney social club. It's one of probably over 100 of these, you can't call them biker gangs, but they do wear biker-style vests, and they hang out at Disneyland in California. (laughs) And they are Disney fans, which is not an unusual thing, but the way in which they expressed their fandom was absolutely fascinating. They were lovely people, first of all. And uh, they they have this very almost kind of macho, uh, very tough guy take on being a Disney fan, which you wouldn't expect. But it's it's a lot of uh, you know wearing biker vests and and hanging out and and doing macho things. But also then there's a very nice Disney strain to it. They help out tourists and they give away <laughs> buttons and they help clean up litter and they give to charity. 
So it was really interesting, especially getting to hang out with them and see their culture. It's this very kind of heavy drinking, uh, very tattooed, much pierced, shaved head kind exactly of a culture. Exactly what you think of when you think of Disney. Exactly. Yeah, and <laughs> except it's at Disney and, and, you know, they're cheering for princesses and, uh, you know, having the time of their lives huh. riding Space Mountain. It's a lot of fun. I got to say, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Zoe fraud the author of Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. Are there times when a really serious fan will lead a company astray? You know, and say, like, you've got to be faithful to the book, and that's what the super fans think. But if you really want to reach lots of people, not all of whom are big fans, you have to kind of deviate from you know, the the real traditionalist way of looking. You know what I mean? Are there times when listening too hard to the hardcore people is a mistake? There is this dark side of fandom. It's one that doesn't get spoken of a lot because most fan objects are just desperate to get together enough people that they have a fan group. But once you have one, you have to remember, fans are conservative, Fans are are inherently conservative. They do stifle change, which is to say when people love something, they love that thing. They don't necessarily want it to change. They might want it in a slightly different color or a different shape. But any time that the nature of their love has to be rethought, they're going to start getting angry. And one of the more recent examples was Maker's Mark, the bourbon and they had an important business decision to make. They needed to add a little bit more water to their bourbon so that they could stretch their supply in such a way that they could enter some new markets. It was a straight business decision. And they did their research, and they were fairly sure that from a product point of view, this wasn't actually going to affect the quality in any way because uh, having a, a higher proof uh, liquor actually dulls the taste buds, so it, it would not change the taste This was not going to be a a problem from the drinker's point of view. It was strictly business, and the fans lost it. They were not happy with this. The idea that they were going to be drinking an adulterated product for a week, they ranted, they made themselves heard, sometimes in in very unfortunate ways. It It was a scene of carnage, and in fact, Maker's Mark did, at the end of the week, feel like they had to rescind their decision, and they did. They decided to go a different route. And this is difficult because this was a a real decision, right or wrong, that they did have the right to make. And more to the point, it's possible that when they bowed to that fan pressure, they may not have been doing the right thing. It's very easy for a very small group of people with extreme views to feel like a much bigger group of people on the Internet. So talk a little bit about your personal experience working with super fans, because we haven't talked about it, but you actually, I guess, have some super fans of your own. Talk about that. Well, I am the co-owner of the company Squishable. We are a stuffed animal company. And the reason why we actually wrote the book Super Fandom is because very early on in the company, we started seeing these unusual behaviors among fans. We didn't realize we had fans. And then we started getting letters with people suggesting which stuffed animals we should make. And then we started getting posts in the very early days of Facebook making suggestions. And then all of a sudden they weren't making suggestions anymore. They were helping each other out when someone had a question. And then they weren't necessarily even asking questions about 
the stuffed animals, now they were helping each other through breakups and sending <laughs> each other, uh, you know, baked goods and, and making each other art. And soon they started doing other things like raising money for charity and they created a book club and they made a trading post to trade their stuffed animals and other things too. And uh, they, they started petitions when they wanted certain items back. So this was all fascinating to us, especially since it soon became clear many of these super fans didn't even own a Squishable. They what? were simply doing this for the, the love of the company and, and the enjoyment of talking to each other. But wait, how could they love the company if they didn't own any of the products of the company? Well, this was one of the early realizations that we made, which is fans are different from consumers. Fandom does not actually require any sort of commercial undertaking. A consumer consumes what they're given. They take the thing that they're going to buy, they buy it, they consume it in the way that it was intended, and then maybe they'll buy more. They watch the movie. They read the book. They right. get the action figure. Whereas fandom may not have anything to do with that. It has to do with uh, talking with each other and with um, showing your love in other ways, maybe making content, drawing pictures, taking pilgrimages. The two do often overlap, but they actually don't have to. Did these super fans change your company? And by the way, was there any time that you pushed back against them? <laughs> well, after a while, we started realizing that some of these suggestions they were giving were brilliant. Uh, and in fact, today, the company is very heavily crowdsourced, which is to say the fans actually design probably about 50% of what we release. We have a platform called Project Open Squish, which allows any fan to submit ideas and, and drawings of toys that they think would make a good squishable. And this has been very successful for us. Things that in a million years we never would have considered making. A kitsune, a multi-tailed fox. We, we saw it come through Open Squish. It won. We were like, oh, I don't know. We put it up for sale and we were sold out half an hour later. So it just goes to show. Super fans may be onto something. Yeah, they certainly know a lot more about our brand than we do. They're not always <laughs> right. But they certainly know what they want, and especially in a company which, you know, still in the world of toys is a relatively small player, uh, that's a huge advantage. Can, can you think of uh, an example of something small that got currency because, not because it was loved by millions, but because a small number of people were able to find it and support it? Well, actually, Nutella the chocolate hazelnut spread. Oh, I know what Nutella is. <laughs> oh, yes, which we all we all know and love it now. But we didn't necessarily a couple years back. They actually, Nutella had no U.S. presence whatsoever. They were only European. And uh, there was a super fan of Nutella who was an American. She had moved to Italy. She said, we've got to change this. This stuff is wonderful. And she started a website and she created World Nutella Day which uh, is a wonderful idea, and uh, just really evangelized on behalf of this brand to the point where, in fact, they did become rather well-known, and Nutella got enough feedback that they, in fact, have entered the U.S. market now in a very serious way. So this very small niche brand at the time really was given the impetus to grow into a much larger one because of fan activity. Do you see any 
uh, drawbacks to super fandom. I mean, there's a lot of people who invest a lot of time thinking about or spending money on, you know, Disney, Star Wars. Is that a good thing? There's been a lot of hair split over, is fandom good for people? And I think that may be asking the wrong question. Fandom may or may not be good for people, but caring about something is very good for people. So there have been a lot of good studies recently uh, that actually showed that, for example, sports fandom has huge psychological pluses. People who are into a sports team and care about that sports team, especially if they're near a social group that also cares about that sports team, they have much lower stress, they have lower anxiety, lower rates of depression. They simply are able to use their love of that team in order to live better lives. Zoe Fraud-Bonar is the co-author of Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. She's also a founder of Squishable, a company that sells plush dolls, and she teaches at NYU. Zoe, thanks for being here. Thank you. I love Nutella, man. I really love it. I can eat this every single day. So this song is about Nutella. Yo! I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. Haters be hating because of my love for Nutella. They jealous. The song you're hearing is called Roy's Nutella Song from the YouTube star Roy Wasabi. You can find the whole thing on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio.